This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Hello and welcome to Window on the East with me, Ben Aris, the editor of BNE IntelliNews. The people of Belarusia have risen up against Alexander Lukashenko, who has run the country for 26 years. There are extraordinary scenes coming out of Belarusia as people protest against Lukashenko, calling for his resignation after he blatantly stole the presidential elections on August 9th. Events took a dramatic turn yesterday when workers at most of Belarusia's most famous companies went on general strike. Some are saying that this is the beginning of the end. I talked to Nigel Gould-Davies, who's a former British ambassador to Belarusia between 2007 and 2009, about what's happening and what to expect next. So, Nigel, thank you very much for joining me. Um, seems like the timing of our conversation is extremely apropos in so much as things are going extremely fast in, uh, in Belarusia. And the big news, of course, yesterday, most of the largest and most famous uh, companies went on strike. And then this uh, last evening, or the interior minister, or deputy interior minister, went round and apologised to all of, uh, or a lot of the detainees, and they've let at least a thousand people out this morning. Do you think this this is a, a turning point uh, that the protests have been on the streets so far, but a general strike? This is Lukashenko's base, is it not? That have turned on him. What do you think? Yes, and it's uh, another point of comparison with previous demonstrations that have followed uh, elections in the past, uh, all of which have been unfree and unfair, of course. Uh, notably, the, uh, the 2010 election, which was followed by uh, mass, uh, peaceful uh, gathering and demonstration in the streets, brutally and, and quickly uh, dispersed. Uh, but at that time, uh, there was no uh, sense of the protests and the mood of opposition extending beyond those demonstrators to, in particular, the, the crown jewels of the economy. This time you are seeing that, and that's one of many things that makes this situation absolutely new. These are the major state-owned enterprises. It's been a point of pride for Lukashenko to have kept them going. It's, in a sense, part of the identity of Belarus itself. Uh, and so uh, this is... Uh, a, a development that uh, is probably incomprehensible to the regime. Uh, and uh, the old uh, tried and tested uh, methods of repression and brutality used on smaller numbers, uh, mostly in the past confined to Minsk, uh, are just unlikely to work in this case. You can frighten people, you can force them out of the country, you can intimidate them, or there's no real sign of uh, successful intimidation so far. There's remarkable resilience and bravery uh, in the, uh, the protesters. What you cannot do is force people to work if they don't wish to. And uh, these workers know that the state-dominated uh, system uh, of economic uh, rule means that uh, if they express dissent, they will lose their jobs. Uh, and they will they find don't it difficult to care to this one. time, do they? I mean, there's all that video of uh, the meetings between directors, and uh, one of them, the director, was saying, "Listen, Rebeata, the, the elections are over. Lukashenko won." And then there was this this complete torrent of shouting. No, we're not accepting that. And then they got up and walked out. 
So they don't seem to be afraid anymore that they're going to lose their jobs, or at least they don't care that people have, have you know, this, this has been a tipping point. That's, that's exactly the point. Yes, they, they're, they're no longer afraid of that. Uh, and you can uh, uh, force some people out of their jobs and make it difficult for them to get new ones. But you can only do that with small numbers and as a sort of a, a demonstration effect to others. If larger numbers, if large majorities at these factory meetings are putting up their hands and saying, yes, we voted for Tsikhanovskaya, well, you can't fire the entire factory yeah. Uh, you can't tolerate a situation so, which the... So what changed? Because the opposition work. actually called for a general strike on, I think, Tuesday, and it was supposed to start at 12 in the midday. And a few people did leave work, but they were immediately arrested. And the whole thing was a bit of a flop. Uh, and then suddenly, yesterday, it was like factory after factory, and more of them were coming out this morning. What, what changed in the last two days? Why did this suddenly this brush fire of, of uh, strikes begin? I think it's a, a common uh, pattern that we see in other times and places like this. It takes a little time for uh, various forms of expression and de demonstration of dissent to gather pace. Uh, these things, people wait and watch to see what others uh, are doing. These are the, the dynamics of a typical turning point. Uh, the, the thing begins, gathers pace, uh, people look at what their friends uh, and colleagues are doing and make their decisions over time. But it can escalate very quickly and spread, in this case, from factory to factory and from town to town, far outside Minsk. And that's what's happening now. People are emboldened by the examples they are setting one another. Tell me, um, what practical difference does it make? I mean, we, we took a look at the, um, the forces that... Lukashenko has available to him. And I was surprised to discover there's only uh, 1,500 Oman riot police in the whole country. Uh, and are you saying that the Lukashenko's regime is simply going to be overwhelmed by the sheer number of people that are on the street? I mean, Zhirinovsky came out of all people and said Lukashenko should go, that um, everybody hates him. But I think the emphasis there is on everybody, that if you've got 80 percent of the population that are rebelling, that there's no way that even with the security forces under his control, there's anything he can do. I mean, aren't we starting to look at, if, if he does try and hang on, things like martial law? Yes, uh, it's the, the sheer scale of the, uh, uh, and uh, resilience and, and bravery of these demonstrations, uh, which are so striking. A scale, but also geographical scope, no less important. This is not something that's largely confined to Minsk. It's happening from border to border. And yes, there's increasingly a sense that uh, the security forces just don't exist uh, on the uh, scale necessary, especially outside of Minsk, to deal effectively with all this. And the more people see that, the more they'll be emboldened. And again, you get this sort of tipping point uh, 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 dynamic uh, at work. And yes, a lot of people, around 7,000 or so, have been detained, brutally, really brutally beaten, even by the standards of these situations, uh, need, in needlessly sadistic ways, and then released as a sort of demonstration uh, to others. But that's not what's happening. People are now not thinking and saying, well, this might happen to me, therefore I will stay indoors. It's evoking more outrage. So it's having exactly the opposite 
effect that it intended. Mm. To the extent now that hospital staff who have had to treat some of these appalling injuries are now out on the streets with photographs yes. of the sorts of uh, wounds and injuries that they have had to treat. So this thing is spreading. So what's the next step? The biggest stick of all is the military, and that would mean martial law. Now, the military have not yet been uh, directly involved in this uh, crisis, we can now call it, uh, and they haven't been before uh, in past situations. So it would be a major escalation, but it would pose big questions for the military itself. This is a force uh, with a proud identity defined by the mission of protecting the country from external threats, not uh, internal protest. Mm. Uh, they did not sign up to the mission of suppressing their own people. Uh, Is there so then a possibility of a Lebedev, uh, Alexander Lebedev, the general in 93, who that night that um, the communists had taken over the White House, and that night Lebedev came down on the side of Yeltsin and basically tipped the whole thing in Yeltsin's direction. Because we've seen these soldiers and policemen taking off their uniforms and throwing them in the bin. And also there was um, a deputy from the administration, uh, the presidential administration that quit last night. But do you have any sense of to what extent the Lukashenko's losing the loyalty that you know his hold on, on the, the, the security forces, the military is slipping? Because that, if that goes, that will go very quickly. And if he orders the troops into the streets and one of the generals says no, then uh, either it could be over very fast or you could even end up with a civil war situation where loyal troops fighting unloyal troops. Is that on the cards? Well, who knows? These situations uh, are always extremely fluid and uncertain, unpredictable. One can define certain sort of choices and decisive moments. The point about 93... Uh, was in in uh, Moscow was that the uh, well initially the uh, the forces were reluctant to support Yeltsin they demanded a written order uh, and then they backed power uh, Yeltsin had a democratic uh, legitimacy that um, was one of the reasons why they could ultimately support him I think Lukashenko has none of that mm. uh, at all it's a very different situation. Doesn't, doesn't that mean that if he tries to order the troops out, they'll, they'll basically say no, because they, they know that he has no legitimacy and they know that he it would be them, solely them, that would be keeping an illegitimate president in, in place. And so the chances of them saying no and rebelling are actually quite high, aren't they? We, we just don't know. But what we can say is that uh, that uh, might be one of the key turning points in this situation. The decisions that the military have to make if they are called upon to implement martial law. On a separate line, um, to what extent is this Minsk based? I mean, of course, a lot of the uh, video tweets, reports we're seeing are coming out of Minsk. However, this is a countrywide protest. I mean, there was a nice little vignette of one village of 43 people who came out and lined the streets of their village with flags and, and flowers yesterday um, to show solidarity with, with the capital, uh, with all the people that were being detained. And isn't that a major nightmare for Lukashenko because he's brought a lot of the forces up to Minsk in order to control the capital. But then that's left the rest of the country exposed. And 
again, I think it was in Brest or, or one of the other villages, uh, towns, where there are riot police, you know, who are locals and the weaker ones who are left behind have refused to sort of bludgeon their, their neighbors, their teachers, their shopkeepers. And even if Lukashenko keeps control of the capital, um, he's going to lose the rest of the country, isn't he? Yeah, come back to the point I made earlier. I mean, what's really interesting about this is not just the, the numbers involved, but their geographical spread. This is something that's happening in towns large and small and even villages. Uh, you had the mayor of Jodhana, I think it was, speaking to protesters. You have had in Kobrin and one or two other towns reports of the, uh, the Oman forces lowering their shields and allowing themselves to be embraced uh, by local protesters. Uh, you've had uh, reports from all sorts of things, Gomel, uh, Rodna, uh, Brest, uh, other uh, places as well. So this is a genuinely national-wide mm. uh, uh, demonstration of uh, growing uh, outrage, escalating outrage. And uh, it's uh, one of the reasons that makes this a, a potentially transformative situation. And what about um, uh, Tikhanovskaya? I mean, she, and we now believe that she was, she went to go to the, the central election office. And while she was in that office, that she was basically threatened by two security guys. Um, and one can only assume that they threatened to detain all her colleagues. Uh, and her husband, of course, is still in jail and that something would happen to him, you know, life imprisonment, death, whatever. And she very dramatically made that what looks like forced um, video clip calling on people to respect the official results, calling on the protesters to end. And then by the end of the day, she'd left the country. Does she play any role in this going forward? Or is she just like a symbol? Uh, I mean, what happened to her casts further light on both on the brutality of the regime and its own incomprehension of the situation. So yes, think about this. Uh, in the Central Election Commission itself being forced like a prisoner reading out a confession, uh, to, to say, uh, to, to read a, a, a scripted uh, request uh, to, uh, to, to essentially de demobilize the, uh, the civil society. Um, quite clearly uh, under severe and extreme duress. And let's recall in the late 1990s, four prominent opponents of Lukashenko simply disappeared from the face of the earth and never been seen again. The widely held assumption is they were simply killed. So uh, Tikhanovskaya, of course, was always a reluctant candidate. She uh, only stepped in because her husband had uh, intended candidate, uh, was, was imprisoned and remains there. She was not the inspiration. She was the figurehead and, and so to speak, the lightning rod for the accumulated uh, discontent and demand for change. So, and it's, so it's always been much more than about her. Uh, to, to that extent, it's uh, in practice, a, a, a ultimately, and even more so now she's out of the country, safe, thank goodness, it's, it's, a, leaderless, it's a leaderless movement mm. uh, uh, with astonishing uh, uh, skill, bravery, uh, creativity that's constantly evolving and developing its, its uh, methods, its tactics, uh, and growing in support. So uh, she had always said, you know, if she was elected, her main demand was to hold fresh elections, to release all political prisoners, to somebody else, to elections, 
yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it's ultimately, again, it's one more mistake by the authorities and a sign of their incomprehension. They don't understand the situation. I think that by getting rid of her, they somehow quell uh, the, uh, the discontent. But uh, the sources are much deeper uh, than her yes. presence. Um, Russia is, of course, uh, a major player in this. Uh, and there's been a lot of speculation about what Russia will do. And on the one hand, Putin rapidly congratulated uh, Lukashenko, as did he from China. And both of them have economic interests and um, have been dealing with Lukashenko forever. But at the same time, and what has been very notable is the criticism that's also come out of Russia from the head of the Foreign um, Relations Committee in the Duma, who basically said the election was stolen and that it's, uh, the numbers are a hoax and that Lukashenko should leave. And the Ministry of Foreign Affairs yesterday also relate, released a message specifically saying that Russian people uh, are, are there for the Belarusian people and seeming to distance themselves from Lukashenko. Um, and a week Lukashenko stays in office seems to be in Russia's best interest because he'll have no friends and they'll be completely control him. But to what extent is Russia actually standing on the sidelines that this is going to be similar to Armenia where they let the revolution progress and ended up having quite good relationships with Pashinyan, uh, Pashinyan after he, he took over. Because, um, of course, the economic interests of Belarus are tied at the hip to those of Russia. Yeah, so uh, I think, I don't think Russia is standing on the sidelines. Stand, Russia is uh, watching what is happening very closely and uncertain what to do now. And how far ultimately to back uh, Lukashenko. Uh, and uh, an interesting feature, as you say, is that there's a multiplicity, multiplicity of voices now in, uh, in uh, coming out of uh, Russia. Uh, Putin's own congratulation was very perfunctory uh, and terse and was immediately followed by a much longer paragraph in his telegram uh, calling for uh, the deeper integration of uh, Belarus uh, and Russia, which really means Belarus into uh, Russia and, and the various economic and security issues. So, uh, and we've had these dissenting voices, as you say, uh, critical of Lukashenko from, from people who probably wouldn't have done that unless they felt they had a license to do so. As you say, the, the likes of uh, Zhuranovsky uh, and Zatulin and so on. They're not to speak of the, of the media, normally you know, even compliant outlets. So, uh, but to, to the point about uh, uh, the comparison with Armenia, I'm not so sure about that. Um, not least because Belarus in all sorts of ways, geographically and symbolically, is very different from Armenia and much more significant for Russia. It's a part of Europe. Uh, it borders three EU and NATO uh, member states. But more important, perhaps even than that, it's an Eastern Slavic a country which many in Russia do not really think of as a, a properly a sort of distinct country with a different culture, more like younger brothers, something like that, of uh, Russia uh, and of Russians. So there's a resonance. What happens to a long-serving uh, authoritarian leader of an Eastern Slavic state has resonance within Russia itself. And it's not 
uh, insignificant that we've seen one or two Belarusian flags in the demonstrations in Hibarovsk, uh, for example, in, in recent weeks. Do you think there's any chance that Putin will give um, aid to Lukashenko in the form of, of military aid, security aid, I mean, there, there were reports, I think, largely debunked that there were some Russian soldiers on the streets in Minsk. And to what extent does he want to, you know, you, he could use this in order to create this union state that they've been talking about, whereas the opposition have clearly campaigned on a platform of Belarusian sovereignty, and they do not want that to happen. And that, that's one of the, the points where Lukashenko and the opposition really do go in different directions. And as far as I understand it, Putin is keen on, on creating this, this union state. So he needs Lukashenko to stay if that's going to happen. Well, uh, I don't think Lukashenko in practice has any enthusiasm for union state, whatever. Uh, maybe he did briefly in the late 90s when he thought the Union State was something that he could run in the dying days of Yeltsin. But since that uh, time, brief window really, the prospects of a Union State are profoundly threatening to him. And in practice, he's resisted as far as he can any effective uh, limitation or restriction on uh, Belarus's uh, independence from uh, Moscow. It's uh, uh, and he, he's done you know, better than he might might be expected to have, given the weak hand he's playing. But still, it's become more difficult over time. I don't think anyone who uh, runs Belarus, present or future, uh, nor the vast majority of the population itself, wants Belarus to be anything other than a sovereign, uh, an independent country. The difference between Lukashenko and other candidates, including Tsukhanovska, with respect to Russia, is that Lukashenko has a bad relationship with Russia. It's very dysfunctional. Uh, the Putin-Lukashenko relationship itself is, uh, is, a, is a very difficult one. Watch the body language of those meetings. It's always very interesting. While Tsukhanovskaya has made clear that she would like a good relationship with Russia. Uh, of all of the candidates, Again, Lukashenko is the one with the, the, the only really sort of critical uh, and, and, um, and uh, on some occasions sort of derisory uh, track record of, uh, of, of, of comments uh, about Russia. So uh, Belarusian sovereignty is, is very non-negotiable for, for anyone. I think the, uh, Putin ideally wants the outcome, whatever it is, to be a leadership, whether it's a weakened Lukashenko or, or some, someone else, that uh, is less, even less well-placed over time to resist uh, Russia's efforts to impose sort of de facto uh, influence and ultimately domination over it. So, yeah, the Kremlin would like someone it can do business with, and actually the opposition looks like it's... Cause I mean, that brings me on to the last question. I'm running out of time. Um, the EU and the West have been criticized for being very slow to, to react. I mean, we've had the mandatory uh, statements of condemnation. Um, however, you know, the, there was notes saying, look, we don't really, in the EU, we don't really have a proper Belarus, Belarusia uh, policy. And that now there's time to step up. And, and I did an op-ed this week saying, look, we can actually help here, but it's time to act decisively. Um, things that you could do uh, would be, for example, and apparently this is being discussed, 
is to recognize Tikhonovskaya as the legitimate president. And that would help um, bolster the demonstrations in the streets, give them more confidence, and it would also make the elite more nervous um, about uh, Lukashenko's leg legitimacy and then help that whole um, elite, you know, abandon him, which would bring an end to this. But do you, do you agree that the EU's been uh, slow? And do you think there is anything concrete that we can do to help in this situation? The, the EU uh, is rarely fast because it works by consensus. But we have a summit today. Yeah. And that's been called a fairly short notice. And uh, we'll discuss Belarus. So that will be an important moment. Uh, we have seen some statements from the EU. Uh, we have seen some uh, actions on the ground, notably the, uh, the visit by EU heads of mission to the spot where the first uh, peaceful protester was killed and the laying of flowers there. So that was an impressive coordinated action. So no, I think these events are, are, are still new and rapidly developing. I wouldn't say the EU has been especially a slur at this point. The important thing now is what emerges from the summit and how that is implemented. And is there anything practical we can do? I mean, it's almost a given that, that uh, personal sanctions will be reimposed on Lukashenko and whoever else um, is in the, uh, in the elite for organizing the, the, these beatings and what have you. But you know, it's, it's a bit of a tired response. And, and really, Lukashenko doesn't care about sanctions like that. They make no difference. The Americans said that they're going to withdraw the aid that they give to Belarusia through the Eastern Partnership. But that amounts to $50 million, which is nothing. So, I mean, it, it, but if you did things like offer Belarusians work visas, if you recognize Tikhonovskaya's legitimacy as president, but th these would be quite radical moves for the EU. I mean, is there anything else that can do in practical terms, other than sanctions? Well, I, I think, it, I mean, one step that is important is to think proactively and not only reactively about the situation. And uh, to, to our discussion earlier about uh, the prospects of martial law, I think it's important that a, that a message of some sort be sent. Uh, and it doesn't need to be public, and sometimes the most sensitive messages are better sent privately. But to the Belarusian military uh, and make it clear to them that uh, if they are involved in domestic uh, repression, then they can forget about uh, a future for any of the training, liaison, exchange programs, uh, anything that they might seek more of. And they're genuinely enthusiastic about this, either from uh, EU member states or the UK or indeed NATO member states, because there are there is training and cooperation uh, and so on of this kind. Uh, and it needs to be made clear that to that institution, there would be uh, a heavy cost to uh, complicity in these repressions. Nigel, very interesting. As you say, things are still developing rapidly and we're all watching closely. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. A pleasure. Take care. Talk to you soon.